Hello and welcome to the Alan and Overy podcast. This is the second in a series of discussions examining the impact of the General Data Protection Regulation. Today we're going to focus on the impact of Brexit on data transfers to and from the EU. We'll also look at what organisations can do from a practical point of view to prepare for Brexit, given the ongoing uncertainty regarding its outcome. My name is Ali Parvin. Joining me today are Jane Finlayson-Brown and Nigel Parker, who are both partners in our data protection team in London. Jane and Nigel advise clients on a wide range of data protection matters. I'm also delighted to welcome David Smith, who is a special advisor to Alan and Overy, and formerly the Deputy Data Protection Commissioner at the UK's Information Commissioner's Office. In that time, David was also a member of the Article 29 Working Party. So David, if I could start with you, what has the UK government said about the impact of Brexit on data transfers? Well, it's certainly not all bad news. You know, there are some positives here. If you look at the, the checkers deal, the, the government white paper, it had a whole section on data protection. Uh, and just you know, in the last few months, we've seen a technical notice issued uh, on what will happen in the event of a no deal. And there's a specific one, again, specifically allocated to data protection. So data protection is in the government's mind, which must be good. Uh, and the government, you know, ministers are, uh, 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 have made speeches. Prime Minister herself has said the UK must be at the forefront of the sort of digital economy, digital growth. That's how the UK sees its future. And that's not based on low data protection standards. It's based on a high standard. Uh, so, you know, the GDPR will continue to be the law uh, in the UK. Although there is a rider to that in that, you know, once we've fully left, once Brexit has taken place, we might have a law which looks like the GDPR, but it won't actually be the GDPR because we won't be part of the, 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 the European Union. And we will have to make some changes to, to, to our law uh, because all the bits in the GDPR which go with European Union membership, you know, partially to the consistency mechanism and so forth, will all have to be changed. And the UK Withdrawal Act and regulations will, will deal with that. But then you come to the question of you know, what happens about the flows of data to and from the EU once uh, Brexit has happened. Well, the UK, I mean, you'll know that there are these adequacy decisions where by the European Commission essentially finds the law of a third country and the UK will be one of those third countries, it, it provides essential equivalence to the protection in, in the EU and, and there's adequate finding and, and data flows can continue. So the UK you know, will be looking for an adequacy finding. Uh, the government called it adequacy plus because they want more than the usual adequacy finding. Although it's interesting that the language has changed a bit. Uh, they don't use the term adequacy plus anymore, but they are looking for not just the law to be, 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 be equivalent, but for the UK and the Information Commissioner's Office to participate in the mechanisms at European level. So to be a member of the European Data Protection Board for the one-stop shop and lead authority approach still to work within the UK. I have to say, I think that's well, wishful thinking might be going a bit too far, but it's very ambitious. Uh, and the signs from the, the European Union aren't particularly good because we will be a third country after Brexit. And there's no real scope for third countries to be part of an EU system. Perhaps the UK could have observer status uh, in the, the European Data Protection Board. Uh, and I'm sure that there will be cooperative mechanisms. You know, ICO will work together with the, the European authorities, even if they're not part of the same uh, uh, formal legal system. Uh, 
What is interesting is that the ICO, the UK regulator, has recently changed its guidance on international transfers. And it talks about restricted transfers and by implication, unrestricted transfers. And if you're transferring from a GDPR country to somewhere else where the GDPR applies, so even if it's the US or Hong Kong, because of the extraterritorial application of the GDPR, GDPR applies there. That's not a restricted transfer, and you don't have to go through all the various possible transfer mechanisms. So what this means, and this ties in with the, the, the technical note that's been issued, is that because the GDPR will be the law in the EU, transfers will be able to take place freely from the UK to the EU, even after Brexit. There won't be a problem. Now, whether that'll be reciprocated and whether transfers will go freely the other way is much less certain and I think much less likely. Okay. And have we had any statements or indication from the EU in terms of what their position is regarding transfers? Yes, but maybe, maybe, maybe not much more than what you'd expect. I mean, it goes back a bit. And Barnier said, I think the EU cannot and will not share its decision-making powers with third countries, which, yeah, all right, you know, but there are still negotiations. Uh, and actually, if the UK, the ICO, was an observer, you're not sharing your decision-making uh, uh, powers. And as you probably know, you, know, you can be an observer and sit silently and say nothing, or you can be an observer and take a very active part in proceedings, but just not put, be able to put your hand up when it comes to a vote. And I would hope you know, the UK would, would, would be the last of those. Uh, we did hear recently Giovanni Buttarelli, who's the European Data Protection Supervisor, uh, say that you know, adequacy plus may be justified. And the UK's critical experience, crucial experience and expertise would be, be sad to see that, that go. I'm sure that's true, uh, and I hope he's right. Uh, but at the end of the day, Giovanni is only the, the, the data protection supervisor. He's not a, a policymaker, so he's not speaking for the, the commission. But let's just hope, keep our fingers crossed, you know, that some good deal will come out of this. So, Jane, could I ask what your opinion is on this? So from the perspective of many companies, I think the um, corollary of what David is saying is that it's necessary to think about transfers particularly that emanate in the EU and land up, for instance, in the UK. And there, I think, companies should be considering the mechanisms they currently use for transfers out of the EU and whether they need to adapt to now regard the UK as an additional third country in the same way as they might transfer to the US. Does that mean they need more model clauses, um, SEC as they're called, st standard contra um, contractual clauses? Um, or you know, do they need to refresh their binding corporate rules, um, the intra-group mechanism for which they would use to transfer data around a group? You know, or are they relying on a derogation or consent? You know, what is the mechanism that they would use until the UK, hopefully it is until, we become an adequate country um, or adequate plus, as David is mentioning. One of the things I'm being asked a lot uh, by clients is when to actually start doing something about all of this. I, I think a lot of clients have defined the problem, or at least they're, they're some way along towards defining the problem. We have data transfers from the EU into the UK. We need to do something about it. Many of them will have immediately got to the conclusion that they probably need to put model clauses in place. But 
they're asking, when do we pull the trigger? There's so much uncertainty at the moment still. Um, we're telling clients really now is not the time to pull the trigger on implementing those sorts of actions. They could prove to be completely unnecessary. But of course, in complex organizations, when you do decide to pull the trigger, it's not necessarily something that can happen instantly to, to, to fix the problem. And so lots of planning needs to be done. Um, most of the clients we're working with at the moment are spending a lot of time planning, making sure they understand the problem, doing their due diligence, they understand how many contracts are we going to have to amend? Is it just an intergroup problem or is it a problem where we're going to have to engage with lots of different counterparties? And of course, many um, companies will have done their GDPR programme and have a good register under the Article 30 obligation of what data they have, where it's going, the international transfers. So at least in theory, they should be well positioned to work out um, which data flows they need to redocument and reconsider. And even if we have a hard Brexit in March next year, I can't really see European data protection authorities you know, immediately imposing sort of huge penalties on businesses that are continuing to transfer data to the UK. I mean, remember, the UK will still have a law which is like the GDPR. It's not a risky desk destination. It might, there might be a legal question. And of course, businesses will need to put their, their houses in order. Uh, but if we go back to when the safe harbour was struck down, you know, there, was a, there was sympathy, if you like, for the position of, of, of businesses and time uh, to get, as I say, get their houses in order before data protection authorities really started to take an interest. We've also got the recent experience of Article 28 amendments. So everyone's had this problem of having to amend their agreements with their data processors to, to comply with Article 28 of the GDPR. And I think for some companies that was just a huge task. In some, in some cases they had thousands of supplier agreements to amend. And of course that's not a simple process because everyone has a different view as to what those clauses should look like and everyone's running their own GDPR program and has a different view as to the time timeline they want to, to, to make those amendments to and, and what they want to go in them. Um, so I think and we're well, well past the GDPR date exactly. now, aren't we? And, it, and they haven't all done it still. You know, so, uh, not, of course, Alan Overy clients probably have, but you know, we know out there some haven't. And so... Uh, yeah, and we don't, yeah. we don't expect to see lots of enforcement action around that, and, and indeed we haven't seen it yet. So we've got to be hopeful that there will be pragmatism um, from all involved. Uh, 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 and, you know, it's something that will affect everyone. Um, that there'll be time to, to get things right. And I think lots of our clients, they've, they've recently perhaps felt slightly burned by the experience of their GDPR projects, where they set themselves targets to achieve certain things by 25th of May, and it creates lots of internal pressure, lots of executive pressure to achieve 100% compliance. But it's very hard to deliver. And so I think a lot of people are reluctant to go setting themselves a target of um, Brexit day for solving this problem, whatever this problem ends up being. I think that's absolutely right, especially because in many cases you're engaging with a third party supplier and obviously it takes two to tango. So you know, you're completely reliant on your counterparty being pre prepared to engage with you on that process. 
And if they have a different view of the Brexit negotiations and the likelihood or otherwise of a hard Brexit, you may find that you know it's almost impossible to move things along much as you're trying yourself. But I think preparation is key, having the plan in place, knowing what transfers are affected and being able to tell a regulator if, if you are asked what your um, proposed course of action is, you know, that to me is a sensible next step. I think that's right. You know, always having a good story to tell the regulator that you've got a plan and it's on your plan, even if you haven't got there and done it yet. Showing commitment yes. is, is key. Yeah. But apart from contractual amendments, I mean, do, you, do they need to be thinking about the location of their data protection officers or consideration of who a lead supervisory authority should be? Is, is that a consideration? I think... The short answer to that is this is all about international data transfers. There's certainly other questions to be addressed. Um, you've touched on some of them. Do we need to relocate our data protection officer? Do we need to amend privacy notices and so on? But having looked at all of those questions, I think we generally come to the view that, uh, that action probably isn't required. Um, certainly in the case of a data protection officer, most people got comfortable with GDPR, with the idea that a data protection officer could be located in a different country to the, the legal entities which they are representing. Um, so I don't think that, you know, because the UK becomes a third country, that that suddenly becomes a problem, you know, to have your data protection officer located in the UK after Brexit, um, that, that French companies, German companies, they, they, they couldn't have a data protection officer located in the UK. It's really this, the same questions apply now as to whether they're really accessible to the data subjects. Do they have the language skills or the support they need to be able to actually effectively fulfil the role? Privacy notices might need to be amended. Um, one of the things privacy notices specify is whether data is transferred internationally, in particular to third countries. And uh, it might be appropriate to amend a privacy notice to refer to the fact that data will be transferred to the UK, um, where they don't now. But I'd say that is a fairly minor change, a fairly immaterial change, certainly not one that justifies being pushed out in emails to hundreds of thousands of data subjects informing them of the change. So I think as you sort of work through the other consequences, I think they're all fairly minor and, and nothing to get too exercised about. It's really international transfers where the, the thorny, you know, issue really arises and where there is, a, in the event of a hard Brexit, a clear need for action to be taken. And I would expect that many international companies who already have a large presence on the continent will have um, good relationships established already with their local data protection supervisory authorities. Um, so I think it's a continuation and, you know, perhaps obviously a consideration of whether it's appropriate to name one of those as the lead supervisory authority and to establish that sort of formal sort of relationship there. But it should be, I would have thought, in many cases, a continuation of their natural business relationships. David, I don't know if you've got a view about that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, things do vary in Europe, and yeah. all the data protection authorities are, are different, and some are more keen on striking up relationships. But you would think that you know, by now these big businesses, the ones that are primarily involved in, in international transfers, would be working with their data protection authorities. And, of course... <laughs> I mean, working with the data protection authority, if they know you and you've got a relationship, it's harder for them to sort of come down like a ton of bricks on you when you're actually in a very difficult situation and it's hard to 
to, to know what to do. So I, I'm with you, Jane. You know, don't rush on this. Uh, we're still hoping there'll be a deal anyway. And, yeah. you know, this problem won't go away, but it might be put off until the end of a, a, a transitional period. But even if there's not, yeah, get prepared. Uh, but, you know, don't panic. Uh, and don't waste huge amounts of resources, which, f forgive me as a former regulator, are much better put into you know, improving the security of personal data, ensuring that people are properly informed and they have rights over their data, dealing with your subject access requests, than spending a lot of time drafting contracts which may not be needed at the end of the day. Yeah. One thing that just strikes me, though, is perhaps where you've got companies that are in the process of adopting binding corporate rules and they're relying on the ICO as their lead supervisory authority. To your point, Jane, I think we, maybe this is the point where should you be developing another relationship with an EU supervisory authority and does that sort of smooth the way? Is that something that should be considered? I think we are seeing, you know, clients and other companies um, considering carefully um, who to ask in terms of which local data protection um, supervisory authority should be the um, the competent authority, as it were, to deal with a BCR application. And uh, some companies are considering, you know, t dual tracks because they have a substantial UK operation, which will obviously remain post Brexit. And they may also have, you know, a natural centre of gravity within continental Europe as well. So considering carefully which of those to to choose is something that I think many companies are doing at the moment. Yeah. And although it pains me to say, I think you know, it does make sense for businesses which have binding corporate rules and the UK is the lead authority to start looking elsewhere for their future lead. Yeah. I mean, of course, the one-stop shop was one of the key benefits of GDPR that was trumpeted. I think, you know, whether, whether it has, it delivers all that was, uh, it was hoped it would deliver, I think remains to be seen. Um, of course, with the UK leaving the EU, it's almost certain the ICO will not be part of the one-stop shop mechanism. And so it won't be possible for UK uh, businesses to, to take advantage of that um, mechanism, at least not vis-a-vis -vis UK and rest of EU. To the extent they have operations in the EU, they can still take advantage of one-stop shop within the EU 27. Um, and that would be relevant to a, a BCR application. It would also be relevant possibly in the event of a, a data breach where they may be able to take advantage of notifying the breach to their lead supervisory authority in the EU to the extent it concerns cross-border processing. Um, but I think the benefits of one-stop shop that we're losing, I think uh, it's not such a, a big deal, frankly. We, we've lived without one-stop shop until now. And so I think we will manage, you know, in future. I don't think it will be a big loss for companies. Perhaps a loss of opportunity remains to be seen, but it, it doesn't represent a big change. So if we do a little bit of crystal ball gazing, I mean, what do you think the best Brexit outcome could be? Well, clearly, I think it, um, from the perspective of the data transfers, if we have a transitional arrangement and there's no sort of hard Brexit next March, that would obviously be much smoother. Um, and even better would be um, Giovanni Buttarelli's reference to sorting out some sort of adequacy plus type mechanism for the UK. And uh, you know, even better would be to do that during the transitional period itself rather than after the end of that period. So that would be the best of all worlds, I think. And 
Absolutely. Let's hope that's what we end yeah. up with. Yeah. And and what's the I mean, what's the opposite? What's the worst case scenario? I suppose the worst case scenario is you know we we crash out in March next year. There is no deal. There's no transitional deal. So the UK will be a third country. There will be no adequacy finding at that point. Uh, UK businesses will be okay to transfer into Europe. Uh, so long as the ICO's guidance you know, stays in place, and it should do. Uh, but for EU businesses transferring into uh, Europe, they will have to, you know, binding corporate rules, standard contractual clauses, whatever, they will have to find a mechanism for their, their transfers. Although, you know, I'm sure there won't be any formal leeway, but we would expect there to be a, you know, a, a bit of a period of grace for them to get their houses in order, as Jane has suggested. I agree, David. I think that would be what we would expect, the grace period. I think just reflecting on some of the ICO's recent decisions, it's clear that they do expect mechanisms such as standard contractual clauses to be in place as between international transfers. And some of their enforcement action actually has been pointing out that they, t they are willing to find where that's not the case. Um, so undoubtedly having a plan, um, being prepared, showing regulators that you're ready to implement appropriate mechanisms would be very important. Nigel, shall I just bring you in on this as well? Is there anything you want to add to that? Well, I think, yeah, we've said it before, it's all about having a plan. Uh, I'd probably break down that plan into an internal component and uh, external facing component. For the internal component, for most companies, that will be relatively quick to implement. Um, whether that's an intra-group agreement or, or um, something of that nature. Um, not to underestimate it, it won't necessarily be something that can be done overnight, but should be achievable in a short period of time. Um, and then there's a plan for the external component, and I think that's the bit that needs more thought to the extent you're going to be engaging with third parties, whether they're suppliers or customers or others, in order to solve this problem the more thought you can give to how that will work, the better. That you've got your standard terms ready, that you've got your playbook ready for how you're going to handle that. You've made the decision as to whether you're going to do it proactively or reactively. Um, it's really important. And of course, as with any plan, think about how you message it internally. Avoid being uh, held to artificial deadlines, which drive the wrong behaviours that mean resources are being allocated to the wrong problem um, so that you can deal with this in an efficient way that's not disruptive to the business or at least is as uh, least disruptive as it can be. So thank you very much everyone I think that's been a really helpful and informative discussion. Yeah.